Hi, and welcome to a very special episode of the Rethink Retail Show. Today marks our 100th episode of the Rethink Retail podcast. Here at Rethink, we are driven by a hunger to understand how technology and connectivity is changing the way people shop, how brands sell, and ultimately, how the world operates. After a caffeine-fueled think session, we came to a striking realization, what a better way to understand retail than by going directly to the source. So with a shotgun mic and a tiny but mighty team, we officially launched in the summer of 2018. And since then, we've spoken to dozens of retailers, academics, and thought leaders around the world. We became analysts, critics, futurists, and cultural anthropologists. We asked why, formed opinions, and challenged our own beliefs. And we hope that you have too. It's through the support of you, our listeners, and our brilliant tribe of industry experts that we get to continue on this curious journey of rethinking retail. I'd like to give a special thanks to our team members, Gabriella Bach, Trenton Waller, Danielle Bertinall, and Natalie Arana. We are so thrilled to be celebrating 100 episodes with you today. So without further ado, I'll let our esteemed guests introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Dan Goldman. I head up Global Strategy at the North Face. We're overseas strategy, consumer insights, business development, and then new growth platforms. Hi, everybody. My name is Jason McNary, and I am the chief executive officer for the Americas region with Uno Day 50, globally based out of Madrid. And I also sit on the board of directors with Clarity Brand and Spring Place. Hey, I'm Jennifer Stone Williams. I'm the former VP of retail at Periolis International. So we had a portfolio of a lot of brands. I also sit on the advisory board for design retail and future stores. Great. Jason, Jennifer, and Dan, I'm super excited to have you on. Let's start with some trivia. Question one What was the first item to be sold on eBay? Was it A, a ballpoint pen? B, a Pez dispenser, C, a guitar pick, or D, a laser pointer. If you'll hold up your cards, I will call out your guesses. Okay, Jason picks C, a guitar pick. So does Jennifer. And then Dan, I can't see your paper, but what'd you pick? Sorry, it's, it's B, the Pez dispenser. And Dan picked B. The correct answer for this one is D, a laser pointer. Oh, man. <laughs> it was, it was a, this was a hard one. We're starting off pretty tough. Yeah. That was tough. All right, let's move to question two. Which was the U.S. retailer to first offer home delivery? Was it A, Sears, B, Tiffany & Co., C, Coach, or D, Montgomery Ward? Jason says A, Sears. I also have A. Dan has A, and then Jennifer says Sears. So are we all, we're all saying Sears. That is incorrect. It was actually B, Tiffany. And <laughs> wow, you picked a good panel today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gabriella picked a lot of these questions, so we can yell at her. <laughs> Question three, in 2013, which fast food chain launched its first influencer campaign by sending branded jewelry to famous models and actresses. Was it A, Taco Bell, mm. B, In-N-Out Burger, C, McDonald's, or D, KFC? We have B from Jason. You're guessing In-N-Out. Dan, what's your guess? A, Taco Bell. Okay, and then Jennifer also says In-N-Out. This time, Dan, you would be correct. It's Taco Bell. <laughs> I do love In-N-Out, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It is so good. We waited in line 40 minutes, though, last time we were In-N-Out in the West. It's worth it. Well worth it. True. Cool. Well, we're moving right through these questions. Question four is, what year did Apple launch the iPod? Was it A, 2002, B, 2000? C, 2001, or D, 2004? 
Jason is guessing 2000. Jennifer's guessing 2002. And Dan is guessing 2001. Dan, you are correct again. It is 2001. Dan is our big winner. I like the way you're saying that we're guessing. What makes you think we're guessing, Julia? <laughs> uh, just a guess. So I don't know. Uh-huh. Okay. Great. Well, four out of five. Let's move to question five. Which famous actress installed a mini mall in her own basement? That's got to be a big basement. Is it A, Katherine Hepburn, B, Barbara Streisand, C, Marilyn Monroe, or D, Elizabeth Taylor? Dan says D, Elizabeth Taylor. Jason also says D. And Jennifer says the same. So the answer is actually B, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> but great guesses. I wouldn't have thought Barbara Streisand. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have yeah. done that. I wouldn't have thought that either, actually. I did, when I went through and guessed, I did not guess her. The second one was Marilyn Monroe. So I was... Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that was the trivia. This one, you guys are going to get a chance to debate a little bit more with each other. So I really want you to say one or the other and don't say both if you can. And just focus on what you would be more excited about for the future. I'll start with Jason. Marketplaces or subscription models and why? Marketplaces, they um, give brands the opportunity to showcase their products to other brands' databases. Good answer, Jennifer. What's your take? I'm going subscription models. I think that recurring revenue bundles are really a hot trend. And I think you're going to continue to see that in lots of different areas. And I think it's a way to really ensure that you can increase your revenue and you can really have your buy-in from your customer in an easier home delivery kind of way. Good. I like that. So you guys pick different ones. Dan, you'll be the tiebreaker. Which one do you go with? I'm with Jason. I think marketplaces are going to be the bigger impact on consumer behavior. I think you see with the retail landscape, especially kind of mid-market, lower mid-market retailers kind of starting to fade and accelerating through COVID and digital marketplaces really are that future where consumers are going to shop. Yeah, listen, I think that both are going to be important channels for all brands overall. I think that it will depend on the brand that you're working with in terms of which one will be most important, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And for marketplaces, what categories are you thinking are the most important right now? Is it apparel? Is it food? I mean, I think the marketplace can really apply to almost any category, whereas I think the subscription model is more limited in terms of what categories it makes sense. And I think overall consumer adoption. Mm -hmm. Good. Good comments. Let's go to our number two, virtual try-on. I've seen a lot about that recently or live streaming. Dan, you, you go first this Oh, this time. is a tough one. Um, <laughs> working at the North Test, I'm going to go with virtual try-on. I think clearly, you know, digital channel continues to accelerate. E-commerce continues to accelerate. Solving some of the frictions and the barriers on that channel that, you know, historically have, have lowered conversion. Virtual try-on is going to be really important. I'm going to take live streaming just because I think that it's a very, um, it's a connection and that people are, are looking for. And I think as long as you can keep your Zooms where you're not Zoom fatigued, I think live streaming is a way to connect with things that you might not be able to do or access 
particularly right now. So I think live streaming could be utilized in a real way to like build on your brand and connect with your consumer. Mm -hmm. Love it. Jason? Yeah, I agree with uh, Jennifer on live streaming. I think that as brands, we're learning a lot about live streaming from the Asian market and how to apply that here in the US market. I um, concur again with Jennifer on, you know, the connection uh, to the consumer and, you know, the physical presence of someone being there to validate is really important. The emotional piece that you have within live streaming, again, is super important as well. And this is something that my organization, we have tested with, and we've been excited about the results that we're seeing so far in terms of revenue growth. But then on a personal level, you know, I have been working with Equinox um, on their BIOS app, which is live streaming workouts. And I have to tell you, I went to the gym for the first time today in six months. But I prefer, after going to the gym today, I prefer the live streaming in my home out of convenience. And I think that that is what live streaming will offer consumers is um, convenience um, and their ability to do it when it's right for them. If I could jump back in on that, I can say uh, I am a Peloton owner and I am such a brand advocate for everything about it via that live streaming. I have such a connection with the brand, their mission, things that they are behind and believe in, and then individually with their instructors who are also building their own brands and platforms in, in various ways and in really significant ways. And that's all via live streaming. And I am actually shocked at how connected I do feel to that brand and tribe and community via live streaming. I think it's a phenomenal example. Yeah, I, I can't argue with what you guys are talking about. I think that the power of digital content to engage with consumers, connect with consumers, I think is really powerful and will continue to increase. And you said you love the Peloton. Were you nervous at first to take the jump and buy it? Like maybe it wouldn't stick? Yeah, lots of people are like, yeah, you're going to be hanging your clothes on that whenever you, uh, you know, in like 30 days. But I actually bought it. I've had it for a year and a half now. And I have been on it every single week since I purchased it. And most weeks it's like, and particularly as I was a remote employee, and then now with lots of free time, no longer working, I have such flexibility with that. So I've actually utilized it 100 times more than I think I even thought I would when I first purchased it. And I'm like an evangelist and I tell people and I talk about it and find it's like something that I discuss over cocktails and dinner because I'm very passionate and connected with it. And do you have favorite trainers? Is that part of the draw? Cool. I've been thinking about it myself. I haven't made the purchase yet, but I might. And when it comes to live streaming, just one other question. Do you guys view it more or blended in terms of internal versus external? If you're, say, I know Lululemon, you know, purchased a startup for some of their live streaming they'll be doing for workouts. But if you're just an apparel company, say, is live streaming applied to the influencers, but also your own internal associates? Or how do you view that? From our side, we view it from having a professional first. These are the types of live streaming that we've done in the past someone who could broadcast from a professional perspective. But that being said, we're also learning that our stylists and stores, that this is uh, incredibly important um, to the world today and also to their personal clients that like the freedom and the flexibility of being at home and not being in the mall or in a shopping center. Just to add to what Jason said, I mean, we are using it both internally and externally. So internally, as you think about 
engaging with the employee base across the globe. As you think about sales launch periods, getting people excited about what's coming out, engaging with even some of our customers that way, as well as on the consumer side. So it is being used broadly. And I would just add to that two examples that I have thought have done an excellent job. And both of them are uh, women business owners, Rebecca Minkoff and Bobby Brown. I've seen them both on very interesting live streaming and, and really kind of stripping down their approach to how they're reaching their consumer. And Bobby Brown said she did a product launch for the first time without being in stores and able to have those. Like, And you think about cosmetics and everyone wants to put their hands on it and have it on their face. But she actually has really stripped down and gotten very basic. And I think people are very interested to hear and see those inside upper level, how, what was the concept. And I think that people connect with that and learn from that. And it really resonates. Those are two great examples, especially with something so tactile. And now they're able to share some of that experience digitally. Okay. We will move to the last this or that. We will start with Jennifer. Mobile payments or voice ordering? Uh, I'm going to go mobile payments. I think that that has become more and more familiar and people who are not normally tech savvy were forced to sort of figure that out during the pandemic. And now I think that it's some of the stigma of I can't figure that out has been broken down and those barriers are, you know, no longer there. So I think that it's also just becoming easier and easier and less friction points. My personal opinion is I think in terms of voice ordering, I think that there's a lot of conversation about the invasiveness of all of that and what Mm -hmm. data is being collected. And so I have more reservations and feel that there's a little bit more concern or question about that than I do for mobile payments. Yeah, I agree with Jennifer. Um, I'm going to go with mobile payments. I think that it's all about comfortability right now with consumers, ease and comfortability. And I think that the use of mobile payments is for me, the way of the next uh, few years here in the industry, because it offers the comfortability for the consumer in terms of how they pay and when they pay and also ease. Yeah, I agree with Jason and Jennifer. I think mobile payments will continue to rise. If you think about the role that the mobile phone already plays in the entire consumer journey, this is just the natural next extension. So it feels like it's the right one out of these two. Mm-hmm. So a lot of agreement here. And to Jennifer's point, do you, Jason and Dan, agree that that's the biggest barrier? Is that invasive nature of voice ordering? Is that what you're hearing as well? 100% for me, um, I've heard the privacy issue and the concerns around privacy. That has been the main deflector for me and what I've heard. Yeah, no, I agree. And I also think voice may work well for certain categories where you're doing refill ordering, but it's more browse categories or new purchases. It just may not be as natural. And when it comes to mobile payments, I have a question because a lot of people have tossed this idea around. Do you think that credit cards will eventually go away, at least for maybe North America? You know, personally for me, I don't think that credit cards will go away. I think they will be here, um, I think at least for the foreseeable future. I think that there is a demographic that is not so tech savvy within North America, uh, I being one of them. But I am a little slow to move into mobile payments and things of that nature as an individual. But I think that credit card will be um, a 
part of our business for the foreseeable future, for sure. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think people have been talking about cash going away for years and years, and it, you know, <laughs> it still plays an important role. And I think credit cards you know, for certain demographics will continue to play an important role as well. Okay. Well, if we are wrapped up on that, then we will go to our last segment today called Toward or Away. Going back about two years and recapping some sentiments from past guests and seeing, you know, did those things change significantly enough where you would lean away from that comment today in 2020 or you would lean toward it? Let's have a listen to what Susan Rita, the Vice President of Education Strategy at the NRF and editor of Stores Media, had to say on our August 2018 show. I look at so many of the new players whose businesses are largely direct to consumer, and they would not exist if it were not for e-commerce. And yet, what have we seen over the last two years, maybe even a little beyond that, is that those direct to consumer brands are recognizing the need to have a physical footprint and to connect with the shopper face to face. So we'll start with you, Jason. Do you lean toward or away from this sentiment? I lean towards it. D2C brands have learned that it's really important for them to um, introduce their brand in a uh, footprint, a retail store, where they can completely tell their story and they can message to their consumer on a day-to-day basis. I also think that having a physical footprint allows brands an avenue that online just cannot compete with. And that is the emotional connection that you would have with your consumer and also with your employees. Suit Supply, for example, you know, they were born as an online retailer and then they moved into having physical stores. They've been very successful with having physical stores. And within these physical stores, they are able to tell their story. They're able to, you know, show the consumer how they build a suit from just the fabric and, you know, how that process works. And they don't spend money on marketing, from what I understand. This is a brand that really depends on their physical footprint to tell the story and to market to their consumer overall. Even from a customization perspective, there are certain um, parts of the business that you just can't do online where you need a physical footprint to exhibit that to your consumer. Fantastic example of suit supply. And Jason, you lean towards this statement. Jennifer, Toward or away? Okay, I think this is a very complex question. And this makes me think of being in a yoga pose when they ask you to push and pull at the same time. (laughs) Okay, I honestly feel like this is like we have to be toward, but I also feel away from this. And here's my concern. I'm very concerned about malls. I don't think that I'm very confident about what is literally transitioning currently as we speak in terms of malls and leases and the real estate there. I'm very concerned about former anchor stores being turned into warehousing and distribution centers and how that will change what a mall destination even is. So I think that it is important for brands. When I think about going towards it and having space, I think e-com and brick and mortar are better together. I think that they make each other stronger, but I guess I think it depends on where brands are and how devastated they may or may not have been and what their budgets look like. And maybe when I think about what this could look like, I see even more of an emphasis on pop-ups 
in temporary locations and, you know, how flexible commercial retail space is going to be in terms of affordability and shorter leases and that sort of thing. So I honestly think there's a lot of both of that going on and it's pretty complicated. I don't know if anybody has the right answer and that's my confusing answer. It is complicated. And I like your analogy with the yoga because that makes perfect sense, actually. Dan, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in physical retail and I think it will absolutely play an important role coming out of COVID. I think all COVID is doing is really accelerating the shift in terms of what role the store is going to play in the consumer journey from the transactional to more experiential, from mass market to more personalized and personalization from standalone to truly connected retail, you do see typically e-com sales increase when you open up a store, if you do it right. We do know from plenty of research that Gen Z, they still like to go into store to hold, test, and try on product. We know that they see it as a way to disconnect from the digital world, even if they're using digital as an important aspect to many other parts of the consumer journey. And look, there's a reason why Amazon bought Whole Foods and Amazon's looking to open up some Amazon Fresh stores. They've opened up their Go stores, their four-star stores, their bookstores, and pop-ups. So you know, Amazon now has close to 600 stores, if you count all those. Similarly, you saw Walmart launch their membership program, and the way they're going to be able to compete effectively with Walmart is using their store base. So I do think physical retail will still play a very considerable role. I agree with Jennifer, though. What the box size looks like, what the lease terms look like, the location strategy, that is all going to change. And the notion of agility, flexibility, and getting closer to where the consumers are versus waiting for them to come into your store will be the real change. Sounds like everyone leans in some way towards this idea that even if you're a DTC, you still need a physical footprint. It's important in retail. And Dan, you brought up a great example as well about Walmart now competing directly with Amazon with their new subscription model. So that'll be exciting to see. Next, let's hear from Anthony Marino, president of ThreadUp from our October 2019 show. You know, I think it's great if the whole industry, the fashion industry can just acknowledge that look, consumers are, their tastes are evolving. They always have a hunger for value, but now they expect businesses to sort of be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I think it's amazing. Let's start with Jennifer. What's your thought toward or away? I really, I agree with what you're saying. I think that this was a really, really hot topic, but I feel that it is unfortunately sort of fading aside with larger or, you know, maybe more present and, you know, immediate issues that have to be worked out. I think with lots of issues with supply chain and really just about pricing and now, you know, with the uncertainty in the economy and I think that value is becoming more important and I think some brands will look at price point as a way to, you know, hold on to volume. So I I know that sustainability is something that oftentimes can be a little bit more of added expenses, but, you know, some companies that's a part of their core values, that's something that they want to stand for. And they may have customers that are willing to pay extra. 
So I kind of think that you'll probably see this in certain brands still stay top of mind, whereas other brands may have to sacrifice this uh, as, you know, I doubt that anyone's budgets are getting bigger or maybe even not able to stay the same. So with having to make tough choices in budgets, I do think that this could be something that could be sort of prioritized down. Dan, I'll let you jump in second here. What's your thought? Yeah, I'm leaning into this in a potentially even a bigger way than pre-COVID. COVID, like any kind of major life-altering experience that consumers go through, helps really reset their personal values. And I think one of the big changes that you're seeing in consumers is the notion of mindful consumerism, that while they're going to purchase still, they're going to place more weight in terms of what the brand is doing and how it connects to them and their values. I think with this, you'll see an acceleration of sustainability and what I'd say sustainability being a price of entry over the next couple of years, just an expectation for consumers that they're not going to be willing to pay more for, but uh, they expect brands to do. I think one of the other aspects during COVID is what consumers have witnessed around the world is with the reduction of the level of human activity in their communities and in different areas, you actually see that there's positive environmental effects, whether it's witnessing improved air quality in, in some of the biggest cities around the world, water quality, the return of wildlife to parks. So I do think one of the positive outcomes of COVID, if there are any, is helping consumers really understand that their individual actions can make a difference in their communities and the world around them. And I'd expect consumers to accelerate their prioritization of sustainability coming out of this, both broadly in terms of what sustainable materials are being used in the product and the footprint but also re-commerce or buying kind of pre-worn product. So I do think I see an acceleration of sustainability. So Dan, definitely you said you're leaning towards and maybe even more so this year. Jason? I um, agree. I'm leaning towards this. I think customers want to identify with values of a brand. They're very sensitive to the DNA of brands, their ethics, their policies, their politics. And I think that there's also this big shift happening in our industry, as everybody knows, with doors closing, Jennifer mentioned malls downsizing. So I think that the consumers more so than ever have a decision that they can make, and they're going to take it back to who they are as an individual and who they relate to from a value um, or an ethical perspective. I think it's very important for consumers going forward. So I lean into it. All good points. And it does remind me, I was chatting with a head of retail for a, a brand just yesterday, and they did mention sustainability was something not top of mind necessarily. And then when COVID hit for just reasons of finding cost savings, it became something they looked into. And that's been really positive. The next and last topic here is one that's near and dear to my heart because it's about food and groceries. And finally, let's play a clip from our August 2019 show with Larry Appel, Chief Executive Officer of The Fresh Market. Yeah, I, I think what we see is that delivery is most impactful, at least now, in markets with density, in the non-perishable products more than the perishables. So I'm not saying there won't come a time when people are perfectly happy to have their steaks and everything that they're buying online and ship, but as a general rule, if you're going to have a dinner party and you're going to serve some cocktail with a mixer that's uh, Schweppes tonic and you're going to serve ribeye steaks, which one are you more likely to feel comfortable being delivered to you that you've never seen? Dan, what's your thought? Yeah, I mean, I think leaning away from what he's mentioning and towards the notion that 
there is obviously an acceleration of online grocery and, and digital grocery. And I think a good portion of that will stick post-COVID, especially we I talked about earlier with Walmart launching their membership model with delivery. You know, in many ways, you know, grocery delivery, even through COVID, has been a little bit of a tale of two cities where in more densely populated areas, people with higher incomes, you've seen a huge acceleration where it's been a little bit slower adopting is more rural parts of the country where there's just less access. And then obviously lower middle class families that may not be able to afford the extra fees. And I do think Walmart stepping in will definitely help that access in more rural areas given their store base. But I'm not sure that they or anybody else will be able to solve the budget problems for people that can't, you know, the incremental cost of the delivery. So I do see an acceleration. I do see a lot of it sticking. And I think it will be an interesting battle between Walmart and Amazon and Instacart going forward. Absolutely. That is the truth. Jennifer, do you lean toward or away the idea that grocery delivery is better suited for non-perishable food? No, I I definitely think that we have, you know, jumped leaped and bounds forward to people being more comfortable out of this, just purely out of necessity. A lot of people utilized this that never would have before. And again, taken away the resistance or the friction to that. But I think what is not listed in this comment, which I do think is huge, is curbside. And I think that even if you're not talking about delivery and you're just talking about curbside, it still means that you're allowing for someone else to shop and, and make your choices for you. And that was something that I know a lot of people never thought that they wanted other people to pick out their fruit or their seafood or anything at all. But I think out of necessity, people have become very, very comfortable with it. And I think you have large grocers that are doing an amazing job. Um, HEB, which is a very Southern, uh, very large private owned grocery chain in Texas has done an amazing job and has basically, they transformed any store to curbside pickup with such seamless ease and so quickly that I think that I would only imagine what their growth looks like there. They do offer delivery and I do think there's a lot of rural areas in Texas that they can serve, but I think that other people are getting that right. And I think it's going to be something that people are going to continue to have interest and that will grow. Great comments. And then Jason? It's interesting. I think I lean in the middle if I can, because I think that some consumers really like the experience that they have shopping for their non-perishables and going into the grocery store. It's an experience for them that maybe they do with their partner or their spouse or, you know, even a friend or, um, you know, roommate, if you will. I think some may feel that the control is taken away from them. Creativity is taken away from them being able to pick out their seafood to Jennifer's point or pick out their steak, because that also becomes a big talking point over dinner as people are entertaining a lot more at home the type of steak or the type of seafood that they chose, you know, it's almost going back to being able to go into a store and make your own bracelet, if you will, like this um, idea of customization, if you think about it. Living in the city, I think that it this is a convenience. More and more, this is becoming convenience even in the suburbs. When you think about it, people's schedules are getting full and they want to utilize this as something that can help them with their schedule and it gives them back an hour that they can apply towards their family or to their home, et cetera. So I lean 50-50 in the middle on this one. I'll take it. I'll take it. Jason, I agree with you. I mean, I think you got the segment kind of the consumer base out there and there are certain people where this is huge asset and will continue to grow and there are certain other segments where 
they like that experience, whether it's looking for and finding new products or wanting to do more value hunting and figure out, I'm only going to buy the ones that are on deal. There's always going to be a segment of the population that prefers to go in store. Sounds like driven by necessity, grocery delivery, and also the added convenience is now driving some segments to stick with it, where as before, there was a lot of people who did not want others picking out their food. So really interesting. I I believe the stat is grocery delivery was around 3% adoption in most markets in the US and in Europe uh, and other areas, but now it's up to 33% in urban areas. So huge. It'll be interesting to see how much of that is sticky, you know, post pandemic. Well, that wraps us up for this 100th special episode. But before we go, I wanted to allow you guys the chance to just jump in and and give any commentary for our retail listeners and what you're excited about for the holiday season, what you're nervous about, what are your feelings as we go in towards the end of 2020? For me, I'm excited about the opportunity that we see in e-commerce and um, digital, both internal um, as well as with our partners. I think that this channel is going to um, be very interesting to watch over the fourth quarter. Um, and you know how it evolves will be something I, I believe that we've never seen before, which is exciting to see this. I think um, what I'm nervous about is the unknown. (laughs) I'm nervous about what Black Friday will look like. I think that no one has the answer to that. So um, those are probably my two uh, points that I'd like to add on this. I'm excited about people and brands and companies having to get gritty and rethink their platforms, rethink their marketing, how they're approaching, really working maybe with a team remote that they've always had in one team and realizing that creativity and collaboration can still happen and how they're sharing that you know new and interesting way. And I think that it's made a lot of brands see more, uh, you can resonate and kind of relate to them a little bit more and they don't seem so, I don't know. I like some of the realness that's coming across for brands in their social media. So I'm excited about that. I think e-com is going to be huge and I think it won't be um, as last minute. Um, I think that it's going to be interesting to see how people kind of plan ahead. But I am nervous about what this is going to look like and the economy, jobs, uh, how that's going to be and what does it look like if you're spacing out properly, safely in your stores and limiting the number of people, how people are going to view and plan how they will shop. But I do think that people will want that experience. But I think it's going to be interesting to see different things that are going to pop up and trend for gifting. I think that there will be, I think people have kind of had a a lot of contemplative time to like rethink what's important to them. And so I think that there could be really different things that we see that could be gifted for the holidays. So I'm excited about a lot of things, but I think there's still so much uncertainty with so many things that it's sort of just, you know, wait and see. But I think it's going to be interesting and for sure. And I am excited that certain retailers are closing on Thanksgiving. That's actually heartwarming to me. And I think that that's going to resonate with people. So I am excited. I just wanted to mention I'm excited about that for them and their employees. I am too. I am too. Good points. Jason, you mentioned e-commerce. You guys both said you're uncertain. And then 
Jennifer, you mentioned that grittiness and the realness, and I agree with all of those. Dan, what would you say? Yeah, I'd probably add on kind of two points about being excited. I think one is this year has been a real opportunity for brands to play a larger role in the lives of their consumers and society at large, whether it was through COVID or Black Lives Matter or trying to pull communities together when many forces are splitting them apart, whether it's how you engage with consumers in in a more kind of entertaining way through digital content and live streaming that we talked about. We've done a lot with our athletes to activate and connect them with consumers, whether it's getting more people outside and getting them to enjoy, think about their lives in different ways, sustainability we talked about. So I do really feel like for brands that are you know in good position right now, there is a chance to connect more emotionally with their consumer base and really think about that longer-term brand equity, brand loyalty in a way that maybe in a normal year they wouldn't focus on as much. I think the second thing I'm really excited about is given how much disruption has happened this year and likely will continue happening over the next several months, any period of disruption sparks a ton of new innovation and new approaches and gives people permission to change the status quo. And I think in periods like this, there's really the rebirth of the industry in many ways. And I think, you know, the industry that comes out on the other side will be stronger in many ways for the players that are left, but obviously challenge a lot of folks that may have not been so strong going in. And I think on the flip side, very much like Jason, Jennifer, I think there will be obviously challenges for the rest of the year. And that makes us all nervous, whether it's what's going on in our communities around us or when you hone in on retail, there's no doubt it's going to be a heavily promotional holiday period. So it's going to be a different environment, but I think overall more excited than nervous, but we'll see what what the future brings. Well said, all of you. And I think the notion has been echoed that this is the time to rethink retail now more than ever. I'd like to give a big thank you to our esteemed guest today celebrating our 100th episode. We have Dan Goldman, Global Head of Strategy for The North Face. We have Jennifer Stone-Williams, former VP of Perry Ellis International. And we had Jason McNary, our own advisor and CEO of the Americas for Uno Day 50. Thank you all for playing along and let's rethink retail. Thanks so much, Julia. Congratulations on the 100 episodes. This was fun. I loved it. That trivia was hard. That trivia <laughs> it was hard. It was good, it was fun. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.